mic turned on? Sorry. I'm not easily distracted. Cool. Thanks, guys. Romans chapter number nine. I am in a rush because I'm going to try to finish this today. I have to. I've got to do it. You all received money. For, if, you, if you felt like it never pays to go to church, you got paid today for being here. And uh, I have to get to that. Otherwise, you're going home with all my change. <laughs> Last week, I didn't get to the illustration. And uh, let me look around. Did everybody get a coin? Did you get something? Everybody. If you didn't, raise your hand. If you didn't. You did, everybody got a coin? Wow. Y'all did great. You didn't over here? Okay. Um, there's a $20 bill, Kevin. No, no, no. I'm telling you where to get it. In my backpack, that black backpack. Never mind. Somebody give this lady a 20. I'll pay you back. Yeah, somebody give her a 10 or a 20 or a $100 bill. If you got a bill, just give it to her. I'll get it back to you, I promise. <laughs> Romans chapter number nine. Hey, we got to go, for real. No time to play around today, guys. We got, we got some ground to cover. So look in verse number 18. Romans chapter nine, verse number 18 says, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory? on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I feel like I should pause and apologize for jumping in so fast. Y'all good? Okay. If you're here for the first time, we're in the middle of a big series. Okay, now you're caught up. <laughs> Verse 25, also as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved... Who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they should be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or Sabbath, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You guys have any confidence at all that I'm going to get through that? Who votes yes? Y'all want to put money on it? We don't gamble in church. I was just checking you. You are so sinful, you people. But I'm going to do my best, honestly, to get through it today. I've said this before. Romans 9 is one of those chapters we could, we could literally spend 8, 10, 12 weeks just in this one chapter, but 
I'm also aware that uh, on Sunday morning, that's probably not the right thing to do as far as trying to go through and break all of the details down. So I'm doing my best to do justice to the text. By that, I mean trying not to skip over anything and just pretend like it's not there because there are some difficult statements made in Romans 9. But I also am, am trying to not spend 10 weeks on it, okay? So today we're going to unpack this question, and, uh, and, and I, I put it in the form of a song so that I, I think you can kind of remember, okay? So the title of the sermon today is, Does God Always Get What He Wants? And here's the tune. Does God always get what he wants? Does God always get what he wants? You won't forget. See what I did for you? But we're going to try to answer that. And that's a good question if you think about it. Does God, if God wants something, does God get it? Our immediate answer would be yes, but we're going to try to answer that biblically according to this text, okay? Y'all ready? We're going to run fast. You guys, you, re you ready? You done your spiritual calisthenics this morning, got warmed up? Because there's no warm-up. We're going right into it. Cool? I'm lacking confidence in a few of you, but let's try. Okay, Father, thank you for this time that we have together. It is a privilege to me. It's really an honor. To, to be here with, uh, with your people and just the opportunity to preach your word today. I pray that you'd use me. Uh, Lord, I do want to get through this, but I don't want to rush. I want to do justice to the passage. And so I pray that your spirit would help us to absorb. I pray that you'd help me to, to articulate in a way that's, that's understandable. I pray that your spirit would deliver the truth to our hearts and do the work in us that we could never do for ourselves. And we'll thank you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in order to answer this question, we have to, we have to pause for just a minute and, and consider the implications of the question that we're asking. We're essentially asking, can God have a desire, a will, keeping in mind that he's God, keeping in mind that he's greater, he's more powerful, he's above all, can God have desires? Does God always get what he wants? Well, we understand the will uh, is, is simply defined as, as wants or intents or in this context, uh, the will of God is what we would call the foreordained purpose of God. And we saw in chapter 8, it says, for whom the Lord uh, uh, knew, he, for, he foreordained, he preordained uh, to be conformed to the image of his son. So there are certain things before uh, the time began that God had already purposed in himself to carry out in the world. And so I want to I just give you a few thoughts concerning the will of God. Number one, I want to talk for just a moment about the mystery of the will of God or the mystery of God's will. This is what we would call the concealed will of God. How I many all know we don't have everything about God figured out yet? We haven't even figured out everything about our planet. You follow me? So we, we evidently haven't, we, we obviously and evidently haven't figured everything out about God. There are things about God that we don't understand and we won't understand this side of heaven. In fact, the Bible tells us that there are things that we won't know until we see him face to face. But when we see him, we will know even as we are known. In other words, God will give us that understanding on that day. But right here, there are things that we just frankly don't understand. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you to borrow, I'm going to ask to borrow your imagination a few times today. But, but, but right now, I want you to imagine that we're standing at the very dawn of time. We're there in the beginning. And, and we're looking forward through, through a cosmic telescope all the way to the end of time as we know it. 
So we're, we're there at the beginning with God and we're looking forward through, through the lens of time and we're observing all of the events. Now think about it, uh, amid all the chaos, amid all the wars, amid all the destruction, amid all the catastrophic events in history, uh, is all of that part of God's plan is really the question. So, so if we look now in hindsight, hindsight being 2020, uh, but, but if we're standing back there before time began, because that's how God understands things, we, we, we recognize uh, when we study theology or the study of God that God is not confined in time. So God has seen the end from the beginning. He already knew what would happen before it happened. So standing there at the very beginning of all things and looking forward, we then have to ask the question, did God orchestrate the chaos? Did God orchestrate all of the turmoil and all of the trouble and all of the wars and the fightings and all the bitterness and the breaks and the jealousies and the hurts and all of the abuses from the beginning of time until the end of time, whenever that day comes, did God ordain all of that? Was all of that a part of his plan? That's the question that we have to ask this morning. So I want you to notice in chapter 9, verse 17, it says, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, here's where we left off last Sunday. The Scripture says to the Pharaoh, God says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up. Pharaoh was a wicked individual. Am I right? Pharaoh was an evil, horrific individual. And yet God says, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Why? that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Well, that's a crazy thing to say. God says to an evil, wicked ruler, I raised you up for a purpose. I still had a plan in spite of your evil, in spite of your villainy, in spite of your depravity. I had a plan in all of that. And of course, go back and listen to last week if you weren't here because this will make a lot more sense. But we talked about three scenarios. We talked about Pharaoh, that God used even the evil of Pharaoh to bring about his work and his will uh, accomplished. So God didn't ordain the evils that Pharaoh carried out. Pharaoh is the one with the depraved, evil, wicked heart that did the things that he did, and yet God said, I can even use your evil to bring about good. That's how big God is. Long time ago, I think back around, I don't remember when I used the illustration of the chess match, and, and, and we talked about how the king always has one more move, and we understand that God doesn't play both sides of the chessboard. Y'all remember that illustration? <laughs> it's bad that I'm going back like eight months asking you to remember an illustration. I can't remember the stories I told last week. But, but when you think about this, some people, again, this is a very good way to, to, to sort of analyze it, but some people teach God's sovereignty as if God is sitting on both sides of the chessboard playing the white pieces against the black pieces. That's not a racial comment, by the way. Just got to be clear these days in a small town. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, <laughs> I don't want to get canceled, but, uh, but, but God is not, God's not sitting on both sides of the table, playing both sides of the table against playing, playing one side against the other. Let's just leave black and white out of it. Okay. I'm not the racist. Whoever created chess is the racist. Okay. But the point is, I don't believe that God has to play both sides. I believe that God in his goodness and his righteousness and his perfection and his power can still move the pieces in such a way that his purposes are accomplished even though he's not the one perpetrating the evil. 
So we think about the mystery of the will of God, how he says things like to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up. And I, I threw a term at you last week. The term is judicial hardening. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart toward God. You understand this? Pharaoh had already made choices to be obstinate and rebellious against the will of God. He'd already, already wholesale rejected God, and so God did what we call judicial hardening. He said, fine, you have made the decision to reject me. You see this actually articulated in Proverbs chapter 1, where God says, because I called and you refused, you stre I stretched out my hand and you wouldn't listen, you wouldn't regard me, so there's going to come a day when you will call on me, but I won't hear you. So he says, you can push me away, just don't expect me to be there when you call on me if you consciously rejected me when you had the opportunity. Again, we can scream that's not fair, but forget, don't forget who you're talking about here. You can't use that language with God. And so notice this, verse 18, he says, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? That's a good question, isn't it? No, stop and think about it. Here, here's the question. So if, if God has mercy on whom he will and whom he wills, he hardens, he, 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 he turns them over to what Romans 1 calls a reprobate mind. If God does that, he says, so the question really is the pragmatic conclusion that we have to arrive at is, well, then who has resisted the will of God? If God wants it, he gets it right. I mean, it's kind of, again, think of the undertones here. He's saying if God wants to show mercy, he will show mercy. If God wants to harden a person's heart, he will harden a person's heart. So, so verse 19, again, the question is for who has resisted his will. But verse 20, Paul answers the question, but indeed, O oh man, he says, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So to me, again, that's the, that's the, that's the human question. That's, I mean, all of us would think that way, right? If we were in that conversation in the moment. Again, it's easy to stand back and, and analyze from afar, but in the moment of, of certain situations, we would say, well, God, I don't know that that's even fair. I don't know that that's even right for you to do that. But Paul says, who, who are we to answer against God? We'll come back to that in just a second. Because number two, I want to point out the mercifulness of the will of God. So we see there's a mystery, mysterious element to God's will, but there's the mercy of the will of God. Now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to recall another illustration that I gave, but this was just a couple weeks ago. Y'all remember I, I asked you to imagine what the world would be like with you in charge. If that's not your favorite illustration ever, I don't know what to do for you. What would the world be like if you were in charge? With, with, with no ramifications, you can do absolutely anything you want. I'm going to let you just ruminate on that for a second. What would the world look like if you had arbitrary control of everything, every person, all of commerce, all the war machines, all, all, all governments, every branch of every government is under your control. You can do absolutely anything you want and no one can say a word to you. You're answerable to no one. No higher judge, no higher king, no higher authority than you. Is that scary? I kind of like it. <laughs> it would be different though, wouldn't it? We would behave differently. I want you to be honest with yourself. We would behave differently if there were no ramifications to our behaviors. Don't do it. 
don't freaking sit there and act all high and holy. I know I would end world hunger, and I would end war, and everybody would be at peace. Yeah. Uh huh. After you built your 50,000 square foot mansion on your own island, probably. Right? Created your own banking system where all commerce, all money has to go through. Wait, I mean, that's what we'd do. We would seize all power. I'm telling you, if I put on a suit, I start to feel like a dictator. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just wear, that's why I wear raggedy old clothes. I don't want to get too high and mighty. Y'all put on them wingtips, you start feeling like a world ruler suddenly. But uh, look, that's what we do. Authority goes to our heads, doesn't it? I can prove this in so many social scenarios. I, I want to say something, but I think it'd be offensive. Maybe I shouldn't say it. See, that's why I get for having people sit. But if never mind, I ain't. I can't do it. I can't do it. But I'm saying it's 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 never ceased to amaze me how how just a little bit of power goes to a person's head. <laughs> just, I mean, we've seen this in churches. You go in churches, well, yeah, I'm the I'm the co-chair of the bloody blah blah. I'm on the, you know, over there, I'm on the, but my family built that church, yeah. Like, dude, you do understand that means absolutely nothing in the world, right? Like, where's your crown? I mean, there's nothing to that. You give somebody just a little bit of power, it's insane. You give the wrong person authority, buddy. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's dangerous. That's why the book of Proverbs says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people mourn. That's just history, isn't it? So think of yourself with all power. And, and I'm, 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 I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Think of it honestly. Again, don't tap into your more, you know, your good side because you have a bad side too. Right? I would own oceans. And anyway, it's crazy to think that way. But, but, but here's, here's the concept. When we think about God, who does have all that we just imagined, He has chosen to show kindness. He's chosen to show mercy. I want you to understand this next statement that I'm about to make because it's so vital to our understanding. Know this, kindness is not a virtue when you're too weak to be anything but kind. Get that. Kindness is not a virtue. There's nothing virtuous about you being nice when, when you don't have the power to be anything but nice. I'm to, I'm, this is a social psychological epidemic because we show kindness to people who can return kindness in favor. Yeah. You want to see a, true, a person's true character? Pay attention to how they, how they treat the janitor. You want to see a person's true character? observe how they behave when they put tomatoes on their burger when they ask for no tomatoes at the Sonic restaurant. <laughs> right? That's a person's true character because it's, you're, it's, not, it's not benevolence when you're too weak to be anything but nice. Kindness is only kindness. It's only virtuous when one chooses to show mercy to an individual they have the power to destroy. That's true kindness. Don't pretend like you're all nicey-nice when you're just too scared to be anything but nice. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is power under control. Meekness means I could knock your block off. I'm just not going to. I love what Jordan Peterson said. I'm running such a rabbit trail here, but try to stay with me. Jordan Peterson, 
said, which Jordan Peterson's not a theologian, he's a psychiatrist and psychologist and a lot of other ologists, more of a philosopher, but, but he made the statement, he said, he said, essentially, a good man is a dangerous man. A good man is a dangerous man who's learned to control himself. You're not, you're not a good person just because you're too weak to be anything but good. You're just scared. That's all that is. But think of God who has all power, all authority. He could, he could crush us at any moment. If we think of God in the, proper, in the proper setting, the proper context, God has the power to squash us like bugs if he so chose to do so. And yet he's, he's shown us mercy. And, and so there's a harsh reality that we all have to face at some point in our journey. And here it is. It's that God has the power to do whatever he chooses, however he chooses, to whomever he chooses. Can we just have a reality check for a moment? We live in such an entitled mentality these days that we fail to recognize the fact that God is right whether you agree or disagree. God can do what he chooses, when he chooses, with whomever he chooses, and he's still God. And so here's what Paul says in verse 20. Who are you to reply against God? Just a gut check. Who are you to reply against God? Who am I to reply against God? Shall the thing formed, he said, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? Does he not have the right? Does God not have the right to choose anything he wants to choose? And then Paul makes this, this hypothetical statement. It's really a question. He says, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God wanted to do that? What if God just wanted to create certain people for destruction? Would he be right or wrong? We have a hard time answering that, don't we? But that's the question. He says, what if God did that? What if God created some people just strictly for destruction so that he could so that he could put on display his majesty his might his power what if he wanted to do that verse number 23 y'all are looking uncomfortable and I'm, I'm happy about that that's a good place to be uncomfortable because it's a deep question in in verse 23 and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not of the jews only but also of the Gentiles. Now, here's what that does not say. It doesn't say that God did that. It didn't say that. A lot of people have tried to make that what it is saying. It's not at all what it says. It doesn't say that God does that. It just says, what if God wanted to? We still can't reply against him. We still don't have a right to tell God he's wrong because he's God. And, and frankly, this is just kind of a, a moment where he's putting us back in our place and saying, look, time out, number one, you don't get to choose how this thing goes. As far as the whole, the schematics of the world is concerned, we don't get to make that choice. He's God, we're not, and we better remember who we are. He said, what if God wanted to do that? He could do it, but did he? So then we see number three, the manifestation of his will. So we talked about the concealed will of God. This is what we would call the revealed will of God. So here's what God did choose to do. So again, now Paul's saying, look, he'd be right either way. 
Amen? If God did, and I think this is the point that I want you to get, and this is what Paul's saying here. If God did, and this is where people get confused, it's hypothetical. He said, if God did go heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, he'd be right. But did he do that? Well, y'all don't answer that too fast. Right? Did he? Well, let's see what he did. Here's, here's, what the, here's where we see the, the revealed will of God. He says in Hosea, so he begins quoting Old Testament. Y'all got real quiet. I don't know if I should be happy or nervous now. But he quotes the Old Testament from the book of Hosea. And here's what Hosea says in chapter 2, verse number 23. I will call them my people. Here was the word of God. God prophesied this through Hosea's pen. I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. So, so within the confines of his own counsel. Think about it. Without any outside obligation, with no compulsory indebtedness to do so, God chose to show kindness to the undeserving. That's the revealed will of God. And that could be the end of the sermon if y'all don't start catching what I'm saying here. Y'all following me? God could have done it any way he wanted to. And he would have still been God and he would have still been right. He could have said, he could have arbitrarily said, you get to go, you don't get to go, you get to go, you don't get to go, get on the bus, stay off the bus. He could have absolutely done that. But he chose to show mercy to the undeserving without any reason outside of himself. We didn't give him any reason to love us. We didn't give him any reason to be attracted to us. We didn't give God any reason to show us this favor or to extend his mercy to us. He chose to do that according to the counsel of his own will. As Paul said in chapter 9, verse 15, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. God said, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God has sovereignly decreed that all who come to him by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross will be saved. That's God's decree. All who will come to faith in Jesus Christ, what Christ did for us on the cross, will be saved, born again. John chapter number 1, verse number 10 says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, watch this, not of blood, that means not, not because of your, your earthly lineage, not because you're Jew, or because you're American, or Italian, or black, or white, or whatever, right? Not because of your blood. Not because of, of, of the will of the flesh. It wasn't by your own decree that you made yourself right in the eyes of God. You didn't just resolve one day and say, I'm going to be a child of God. It's not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of any other man. This is why I teach dogmatically that you do not need a, a, a human mediator to get to God. That means if you need a man to feed you a wafer, somebody has gotten between you and God. Let me meddle a little bit deeper. If you need a man to put you underwater, you have made a man stand between you and God. The Bible says there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus himself. I want to baptize you, but you don't need to be baptized by me or any other preacher to go to heaven. 
There's one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's no man that can stand between you getting to God. It's a personal decision, a personal choice that you have to make whether or not you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, at this time, I need the ushers to come. Seriously, buckets, please. <laughs> Grab me some buckets. Just start throwing them around. Everybody wants you to throw your, if you got a coin or a bill, I want you to throw it in the bucket. Okay? Here we go. Hurry up. We ain't got all day. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> buckets around. Grab that bucket, Ethan. There we go. We got an extra bucket. You can leave today and say, man, they took up two offerings. Just throw your coin or whatever you were given in the bucket, okay? Throw it in there. Throw it in. Come on, quick. Come on. You don't have to fish to those 20s to find a dollar now. Go ahead and throw that coin in. Come on. That sounds good, doesn't it? Listen to that. And when you guys get to the back, dump it all in one and bring them back. Bring one bucket back up here for me. I would say something right here, but I'm sure you're not paying attention to me at this point. He was in the world. Now think about this. And the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the right, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Man, y'all are slow. Here we go. Uh-huh. That was a lot of coins. All right, read with me in verse number 30. Can you pay attention now? All right, look at verse number 30 with me. Dump all that into one bucket and just set it up here if you don't mind. Much appreciated. Verse 30 says, what shall we say then that Gentiles, that's us, who did not pursue righteousness. We weren't looking for God. Y'all know that? We didn't pursue righteousness. Have attained to righteousness. Even the righteousness of what? Say that word with me. Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Why? They were working at it. They were looking for it, right? They were going about to establish their own righteousness. They were keeping the law. They were following traditions. They were wearing what they should wear. They were washing when they should wash. They were eating what they were supposed to eat, and they were not eating what they weren't supposed to eat. He said they were doing all that stuff to attain righteousness. The problem is righteousness is not attained through any works of our own. So, so therein lies the problem. He said, he said the Jews, and this is who Paul is specifically pointing out here, but this would apply to any religious construct that you can imagine who tries to establish their own righteousness and they have their own set of rules and their own way to God. He said there's only one way to God and that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he said in, in verse number 31. He says, Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. So, so, so now, 
we come to this conclusion in Romans chapter 9. But I, can I just pause right here and say I'm, I'm doing it, guys? We're, we're doing this. We're getting there. I'm starting to feel very accomplished, but I still have more ground to cover, so let's not brag too soon. But, but here's the point. At least I got to the illustration. You have no idea what it means yet, but we did it. I got my change back is all I'm kind of concerned about. Um, but the point is, is, is that God has established this system. Dollars, really? Um, God has established this system, and that does not look like all the change we gave out, but I'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, God has established this system. He could have done anything. He could have done it any way he wanted. Would we agree on that? Can the thing form say to him that formed it, why'd you make me this way? You don't have the right to do that. He says, oh, I have every right to do everything I want to do. He's God. But in his sovereignty, he's chosen to save and forgive anyone, anywhere, who will put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so let me make just a few simple statements about faith. And, and we're going to land this plane today. I'm confident, right? I'm going to keep you here till we're done regardless. So, so a couple statements I want to make about faith. First of all, everyone has faith in something. Everyone has faith in something. Now, now your mind is re rejecting that statement because you've heard people say, I, I'm just not a person of faith. Yes, you are. You are absolutely a person of faith. You can say, no, I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not religious. I didn't ask if you're religious. You are a person of faith. Every person has faith in something. And so the big question is that, that we all want to know ultimately, right? We all want to ultimately know what happens when we die. We need to answer that question. We need to answer the question of what happens when we die because the decisions that we make here will, 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 will determine our destiny there if there is one. And I say it that way because the materialist or the atheist would say, well, once you die, you just, you're, it's just like going to sleep. It's just nothing. There's just nothing out there. Right? But, but here's the point. An atheist has faith in that. He says, no, I don't. I don't have faith. No, no. You have faith that there's nothing out there. And you better be right. Because you have, you have anchored yourself in this concept, this notion that when I die, I just go back to the dirt and that is it. There's no afterlife. There's no eternity. There's no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. Imagine that. Well, you're pinning your faith and your confidence in the notion that there's nothing. And so there's your faith. Everybody has faith in something. Everybody, every human being upon the face of the earth that's ever been born has faith. It's inherent to our nature. Everybody has faith. You have faith right now that that chair you're sitting in is going to hold you. Amen? Some of your faith is getting, y'all's faith getting bigger and bigger all the time. Isn't it? Just that confidence that, man, this thing's going to hold me. It's going to happen. You have faith every time you drive down the road that somebody's not going to cross the yellow line and hit you head on. You have, that's faith. You say, well, it's calculated. It's a calculated risk. It's still a risk. What is faith? Well, the Bible defines faith, and it's the best definition you'll find anywhere, by the way. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. That means that you operate based on the faith that you hold true in your heart. 
So, so you get up and go to work tomorrow having faith that the economy is not going to crash by the end of the day. Because if we knew that all hell was going to break loose by 6 p.m. tomorrow evening, we'd probably all skip work and be home digging ditches and trenches and getting our guns and ammo together if we had any. If we had any. <laughs> I, like you, destroyed all mine during COVID. So, but, in all reality, every person has faith in something. You, you can't tell me you don't have faith. Every person has faith in something. You, well, that's kind of ridiculous to say things. Well, I mean, it's fine. You can call it ridiculous, but at the end of the day, you still have faith in something. In fact, I would say that an atheist has far more faith than I do. If I could ever get an atheist praying to God, we'd shake the world up because their faith is in this idea that everything got here out of nothing. That's a lot of faith. That it all just, it just, just morphed and evolved over time into intelligent life. That is a lot of faith. It's a lot more faith than to believe that God designed all things. You say, oh, no, that's crazy. Oh, you're right. No, no. No, you're right. It's rational to believe that a blob evolved into this. You're right. That makes a lot more sense. I'm sorry. Everybody has faith in something. It's, it's, it's part of who we are. God designed us to be creatures of faith. We operate in faith, don't we? Number two, on the subject of faith, it's important to point out that faith is only as strong as its object. Faith is only as strong as its object. What do you have faith in? You have faith. What have you put your faith in? A lot of people have their faith in the economy. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but a lot of people these days, especially in America, their faith is in the economy. If the economy crashed, their faith would crash. If our nation crumbles, their lives will crumble because their life was built on the American dream. And this concept that if I just work hard and, and, and go to work and do my job and get promoted and do all those things, I can just gain more things. Well, then your, your faith and your confidence is in the ability that you have to gain more things, to somehow seek a certain semblance of comfort and peace in your life, which unfortunately most people never attain because we're seeking all the wrong things. So faith is only as strong as the object in which it's anchored. Now here's the paradox as, as we deal with the subject of faith in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith, but we're not actually saved by faith. I like that one. You know what a paradox is. A paradox is a statement that sounds false, but it's actually true. So this statement, we're, we're saved by faith, but we're, we're not actually saved by faith. So, so here, here's what I mean by that. If, if we were saved by faith itself, it wouldn't matter what we have faith in as long as we have faith. This is why James said, <laughs> last time I preached on this, somebody yelled at me from the crowd. Thank you for not doing that. But this is why James said, a man says he has faith, but, but can faith save him? It's a deep question. Now, now see, here's what the other side has done. And I say the other side, people who sort of twist the word of God have said, well, see, that means you're saved by your works. You have to work to get to heaven. That's not at all what James is saying. He's just saying Having faith alone doesn't save you because everybody has faith. He goes so far as to say the devils believe in God and are afraid of him. They tremble. 
So can faith save a person? No, faith itself cannot save a person. We are saved by faith, but we're not saved by faith. Are you confused yet? If we're saved by faith itself, now think about it. I need you to run, be, be a philosopher with me, okay? Philosophize this thought. If, if we were saved by faith itself, then someone with greater faith would be more saved than one with lesser faith. Get it? Is this just too easy or is it, like, are you getting it? Are y'all sitting there going, well, duh, Dudley, we know this, man. Like, give us something we don't know. Is that what you're thinking? That's what I feel like you're thinking. So, so think with me. Think. If, 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 if we're saved by faith itself, then someone with a greater magnitude of faith would be more saved than a person with less faith. Now, herein lies the coin illustration. You ready? We have, what do we have here? Dollars. Nickels. I knew Tracy'd catch that. We have quarters and uh, a lot of pennies, a lot of pennies. This looks like our typical Sunday offering. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I don't count the money. Um, but, you know, we have mostly, I'd say mostly pennies, a lot of quarters, a lot of dimes, a couple bucks. So if, 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 if this currency represents faith the truth of the matter is most of us have that much faith come on be honest i'm not gonna stand up here and pretend like i'm a man of great faith i'm really not my faith wavers sometimes and i've struggled there have been dark nights in my life when i've wondered if god was even there right there have been difficult times in my journey when i thought you know this is all this is all a farce what have i bought into I don't know. I'm not sure God really cares. I'm not sure Jesus really loves me. And there have been times that my faith was weak. I don't know that I've ever had a dollar's worth. But I can tell you this. According to the word of God, we're not saved by our own faith, which is a good thing because some of us don't have a lot. But God didn't ask us. I actually thought I was going to miss that for a second. That would have been embarrassing. Two feet away. Okay, you are white. Anyway. The point is, don't go, oh, I made fun of myself. So freaking soft these days, people. Come on. I'm going to go pastor in a small town if this don't work out. But the point is, this joke won't get old soon, so get used to it. But the point is, God didn't ask us for a great measure of faith. It's not the measure of our faith that saves us. Now, think about this. Here's where it is most precisely articulated in the scripture. This concept that I'm giving you is most pre precisely articulated in a very common passage that you probably know if you've been around here any length of time. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Here's, here's the reality. Faith didn't die for your sins on a cross. Your faith cannot reconcile you to God on its own. Faith is, is, is part of human nature. God has given us faith. It's a gift from God. Now, here's what God has done. 
He's made provision through the sacrifice of his son on the cross and through what Jesus did on the cross. He said, whosoever will may come to me. And if you'll put whatever faith you have, he's not asking for $50 worth of faith. He's asking for just one little red cent. In fact, Jesus went so far as to say, if you have faith the size of the grain of a mustard seed, you can move mountains with that amount of faith. It's not that God's looking for a great magnitude of faith. He's looking for us to put what faith we have in Jesus Christ. And it's not about how magnanimous my faith is. It's about how great his mercy is. And when I put my faith in the mercy of God and I trust in what Jesus did on the cross, God saves and God forgives and God makes us his own child. He said, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. One last point, y'all ready? Are you disappointed in the coin illustration? Man, I drug that out for two weeks, and that's all there was to it. (laughs) But it's not about how much faith we have. It's about where we anchor our faith. That's why Jesus made such bold statements like, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. People say, well, that's awfully narrow. Well, my gosh, what do you want him to do? It's not Buddha that saves. It's not Muhammad that saves. It's not Krishna that saves us. It's not self-help that saves us. We're saved by the grace of God. It's the mercy of God. God could have said, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. Instead, he said, Jesus, take all their sin on yourself on the cross, and whoever puts their faith in you will be saved. It's about the object of faith. And and, and finally this, let me say this, number three. Faith in all forms, because everybody has faith, right? Faith in all forms is, is like making a deposit into a savings account. Faith in all forms is like make a deposit. In, okay. Uh, faith in all, don't read that. Hear me. Hear me. Faith in all forms is like making a deposit into a savings account. You're investing what you have into that account. Right? So, so as I said before, the materialist, the atheist would say, well, when we die, we just go, we go to the ground and it's over. That's it. There's nothing else. Well, you've invested your faith in that. That's where you chose to deposit your faith. You had it, you held it, and now you've placed your faith in the notion that there is no God, in the notion that there is no hereafter, there's no heaven, there's no hell. Imagine that, he says, you have made your deposit. Amen? You've made your deposit. You had faith to give. They're not mad, they're just leaving early. Be okay. (laughs) You can look here. Bye, Carl and Kim. We all love you. Now, we settled that. Look back up here. This is important. All right? This is where we've been driving the whole time, guys. We're about to arrive at the destination. We've, 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 we've made a choice to put our faith somewhere. You hear me? So you're investing that faith in whatever account it is you've chosen to put your faith in. So specific to eternal salvation, the moment we invested our faith in Christ... God sealed the account until the day of judgment. The moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the account was sealed by God himself until the day of judgment. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. By the way, you can't really study Romans 9 without cross-referencing referencing Ephesians 1. They, they go hand in hand. But we just didn't have time to get into all that. But let me give you this one thing that it says. In verse 13, In reference to being saved, born again, it says, In him 
you also trusted, speaking of Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God even uses investment terms in these passages. He says, he says that you have placed your faith in Christ, and when you place your faith in Christ, God sealed that account with his Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So you remember the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die. Raise your hand if you're going to die someday. Boom. All of us. See, everybody can participate. Everybody's appointed unto men wants to die. After this, the judgment. You will meet God one day. Whether you believe that or not, you're going to meet God one day. You say, I don't believe it. You don't have to believe it. You will believe it one day. When you pass from this life, you're going to meet God. And for those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the account will be open and God will reveal all that he has planned and prepared for us in heaven because of the fact that one day in our journey of life, we chose to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You weren't arrested against your will. God gave you the ability to choose. He said, here's mercy. Here's the cross. Here's the sacrifice that I've made. It's up to you to make the decision as to whether or not you put your faith here. Now, I've just, I've just, I've just, I've just poured all I've got, and it ain't much, but I put all my faith in Christ. I don't have a backup plan. I'm trusting in what Christ did on the cross. So, back to our original question. Does God always get what he wants? The answer is no. He doesn't. And it's not because he can't. He could do what he wants if he wanted to do that. He could force everybody against their will to accomplish his own heart's desires. Does he always get what he wants? No. And I can prove it to you. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 9 says, God is not what? That's the want, isn't it? That's what God wants. You say, what does God want? Well, I can tell you, fundamentally, God does not want anybody to perish. But he does want everybody to come to repentance. He does want everyone to be born again. So does God always get what he wants? No. No, because he wants you. But in his perfect plan, in the sovereignty of his will, he chose, not because he didn't have another choice, but he chose to extend mercy to those who would believe in what Christ has done for us on the cross. You understand, we, we live in a day and age when, when the Bible has been more validated today than ever in history. You understand that? God has allowed us through, through, through technology, through archaeological discoveries, through scientific breakthroughs, through historical evidences. We have more evidence today to validate this book than there's ever been in history. And yet we live in an atheistic society where people have wholesale said, if that's God, I don't want him. And we've pushed away and we've suppressed the truth 
and, and, and then we want to, at the end of it all, we want to blame God and say, well, you made me this way. He said, time out just a minute. You've had the same opportunities. I've extended my mercy to you. I've stretched out my hand to you. I've pleaded with you. I've put people in your pathway. I've put situations in your life. I have done things to bring you to myself. Jesus said over the people of Jerusalem, he said, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings. He says, but you would not come to me. You will never stand in the presence of God and be able to point a finger of accusation and say, God, that wasn't fair. God has done everything in his will to bring you to this point, and the decision is yours. It's up to you to choose if you're going to continue trusting in your religion, your own personal righteousness, or if you're going to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Faith is like depositing money into an account. And in reference to salvation, when we put our faith in Christ, God seals the account. And we're safe and we're secure in Him. Because it's never been about how much faith we have, it's not the magnitude. It's the object. And if your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, you say, sometimes my faith wavers. That's okay, because when you put your faith in Jesus, the Father sealed it. It's secure in Him. It's not coming out of that account. He's holding you safe in His arms. And what He's promised, He will also perform in your life if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So does God always get what He wants? No, but you can give Him what He wants today. Because God wants your heart. He wants to be in relationship with you. He's made a way for you to come and know him as your personal savior. He's made a way for you to know him as father. If you put your trust in him. Let's all stand today with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I hope that made sense. Boy, I tried to run through that fast. Our heavenly father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. If there's someone here that does not know you as their personal savior. Just as we've dropped these coins in this silver bucket, God, that today we would deposit our faith that that person who's on the brink of, of a decision, that they're vacillating and being pulled in different directions, I pray that today they would just, they would fight the negative thoughts, that they would put away all the excuses and the adversities, and that today it would become real to them, that they'd put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you'd bless each person under the sound of my voice. There are people here today who are hurting there are people today here who are lost. There are people today that are confused. They're broken. They're in need of mending. God, I pray that you'd supply that according to the goodness of your grace and your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name.